Heavenly Father, Father, again, we are just thankful to be here at this uh, modern-day feast, Lord, a coming together where we can worship you and, and draw aside from the busyness of life. I pray that as we do this throughout this week, your Holy Spirit will be poured upon each one of us and give us understanding and clarity that we may be more uh, confident in our faith and more able to share it with others. For we ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. All right, now yesterday we talked a little bit about uh, what the Bible says a prophet is, a spokesperson for God. A little, we laid a little bit of a, a groundwork there, talked about inspiration, the process, and how it works, and how different people view inspiration. There are different views. Uh, we as Seventh-day Adventists believe in what we call the thought view of inspiration. Ellen White herself understood her inspiration to be thought inspiration. She recognized that she was a fallible human being, that she made mistakes like anybody else, but she also was very clear that she did not pour those mistakes into her writings, that her writings were not her own opinions, and that they are a reliable uh, source of truth for us. Um, that now, when we say, when our, in fact, our doctrinal belief used to say source of truth, and we changed it because we didn't want to confuse people, there were critics who would say, well, you Adventists think that Ellen White is another Bible. And uh, so our current belief, uh, fundamental belief number 18, says that her writings uh, speak with prophetic authority. But I want to talk about that today. I'm going to share with you some statements that we looked at uh, on Sunday. The first one here you can see on the screen. While her statements on the relationship of her writings to the Bible may give the appearance of orthodoxy, she really takes away the Reformation teaching of sola scriptura, the Bible and the Bible only is sometimes how it's referred to, by asserting her writings as authoritative. Now that's in Judd Lake's book. That's not Judd Lake, just so you know. That was a, a, a former Seventh-day Adventist that Judd Lake cited in his book, and it's, it's indicative of many people who hold that same thing. Well, you guys say you believe in the Bible and the Bible only, but at the same time you say you believe in the writings of Ellen White as authoritative, and so that means you really don't believe that the Bible's the, really your foundation of faith. That's the claim that they make. Similarly, uh, Dale Ratzlaff said in his book, The Truth About Adventist Truth, Ellen White, as a source of truth, is perhaps the underlying error of the SDA church, emphasis his. While the Adventist church claims to be a Bible-based church, the leaders know very well that Bible study without Ellen White interpretation will lead members out of the church. Her writings serve as a prism through which Adventists interpret Scripture. So, uh, two questions I want to pose as we get started here. The first one is this. Is a belief in Ellen White's prophetic authority really a violation of sola scriptura? We're going to be addressing that here this morning. And secondly, should a prophet's communications color a believer's interpretations as... Uh, as uh, El, uh, Brother Ratzlaff was trying to point out there, a prism that colors every doctrine. Let me ask this question this morning. Let's, let's go with this question here that I had on the screen. Should a believer allow a prophet, if it is indeed a prophet of God and has passed the biblical test, should a believer allow that prophet to color or influence their understandings of Scripture. Now, I'm going to tell you that 
that uh, the defensive side of Adventists wants to say, well, we believe in the Bible and the Bible only. Does a belief in the Bible and the Bible only exclude the Council of Prophets? It's kind of a funny question, really. But let me put it this way in a way that I think will make more sense to us. Let's go back in time, get in our little time machine, and let's go back to the days of Jeremiah. When in the days of Jeremiah, he was an extra-biblical prophet. He was not in the Bible. They had a Bible. They had the writings of Moses. But then here's Jeremiah, a modern prophet. Question. When Jeremiah came and gave counsel to the people, and incidentally, and we're going to get into this, a significant role of the prophet was to point people back to the Scripture and say, this is in essence what the Scripture says and this is what you're not doing. When Jeremiah came and pointed people back to the Scripture, when he gave his prophetic utterances, did God expect his people to allow Jeremiah's prophecies to influence their reading of Scripture? It would be ludicrous to say anything else. Uh, if, If that were not the case, why send another prophet? Just so we can have more stuff to read? that's going to say the exact same thing. Now, let's go from Jeremiah's day and fast forward into the New Testament. As we mentioned yesterday, the Apostle Paul had the gift of prophecy. He shares that in the book of 2 Corinthians. Now, Paul, among other places. So, when Paul began to preach Christ, where did he preach Christ from? The New Testament, right? (laughs) We, We didn't have a New Testament. He became most of the New Testament, right? So at the time, he was preaching Christ from the Old Testament Scriptures. Now, when the Jewish nation that Paul was preaching to read the Old Testament Scriptures about the Messiah, did they apply those Scriptures to Jesus of Nazareth? So when Paul came and he preached to them, with that prophetic inspiration that he had, did God expect his people to allow Paul's interpretation of those Old Testament passages of Isaiah, etc., to influence their understanding of Scripture. Let me ask you another question. What happened to those who did not allow Paul's words to influence their understanding of Scripture? What happened to those who said, Paul, we don't need you. We've got the Bible and the Bible only. They rejected Christ. Yes or no? So we've got to be clear, and I mentioned this yesterday, we can't allow ourselves, and I don't want to just say a Seventh-day Adventist, as Christians to be intimidated by mocking voices that, that want to tell us that we should believe this or say, well, if you believe this, you're one of... What does the Bible say? In this specific thing we're talking about when talking about prophets, what does the Bible say about prophets? How did prophets function in the... Pardon me, how did prophets function in the Bible? The way I'm going to regard anybody that has the gift of prophecy today is the way that the Bible presents the gift of prophecy in Scripture. Scripture has got to be our foundation even for the gift of prophecy. Now notice this statement on the screen that Ellen White said about a brother Jay who evidently was saying similar things to what we're talking about now, that uh, belief in the gift of prophecy, or what our critics are saying rather, would negate the principle of sola scriptura. Brother Jay would confuse the mind by seeking to make it appear that the light God has given through the testimonies is an addition to the Word of God. But in this, he presents the matter in what? 
a false light. God has seen fit in this manner to bring the minds of his people where? To his word, to give them a clearer understanding of it. The prophet doesn't replace the word. No prophet that ever existed replaced the word. We'll talk about that a little more in a moment. The word of God is sufficient to enlighten the most beclouded mind and may be understood by those who have what? There's a little, there's a little caveat, isn't it? Uh, any desire to understand it. But notwithstanding all this, some who profess to make the word of God their study are founding in, found living in direct opposition to its plainest teaching. Is that true? Everybody claims to follow the Bible. She says, hey, the Bible's as clear as it needs to be to direct people. But yet, with all that said, people will still, who profess to make the word of God their study, will still be found living in direct opposition to its plainest teaching. She continues, then to leave men and women without excuse. God gives plain and pointed testimonies for what purpose? Bringing them back to the word that they have neglected to follow. I want you to take your Bibles and go to the book of Isaiah with me. This is a very well-known passage, and I would imagine many of you would be familiar with Isaiah 8.20. In fact, you, probably some of you would be able to recite it for me without looking it up. Isaiah 8.20. And if you don't have your Bibles and I start it, you'll be like, oh, I know that one. Isaiah 8.20 says, to the what? To the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is... No light in them. Now, I want you to understand this phrase. It's a fascinating phrase, and it's used throughout the Scriptures, to the law and the testimony. The Hebrew word here translated law is the word Torah. You ever heard of the Torah? Do you know what the word Torah means? The word Torah does not mean law. (laughs) The word Torah means instruction. Do you know what the word testimony refers to? Yesterday we looked at the testimony of Jesus. Throughout the scripture, testimony is a word that often refers to the writings of the prophets. Now I want you to get the picture that's being presented in Isaiah. These things, the law and the testimony, are, pre- are providing a baseline by which to compare anything that presents itself as truth with. Right? To the law and to the testimony. But understand the function here. To the law, the instruction. In the Jewish mind, the Torah is the first five books of the Bible. The books of Moses. In their mind, those books provided the the theological framework for their religion. And every after-prophet that came, their role was to point back to the instruction of God. So here's the instruction of God, and then when God's people didn't follow it, a prophet would come, and he's back to the instruction, back to the instruction. So to the law and to the testimony. The role of the prophets that came afterwards were always pointing back to to the testimony, that instruction of God. Now, if you read Scripture, you know that a prophet that came later than Moses may have brought out additional details that weren't in the writings of Moses. Isn't that true? If it weren't, if it, if it weren't true, if, if, if Jeremiah and Isaiah and Daniel and all the rest just said exactly verbatim what Moses said, why bother having them? It doesn't make any sense. So we know that Jeremiah brought additional details out, but let me ask you this question. Were his additional details some new truth that wasn't contained in instruction. No. And likewise, in any age, Old Testament, New Testament, modern prophets, the prophet's role is to point back, just as we're looking at in this statement, point the people back to Scripture. Because unfortunately, we, as fallen human beings, have a tendency 
while we claim to be following the Bible, just not to always do it. Sometimes because we're stubborn, sometimes because of our own confusion. But thank God for his mercy and trying to bring us back because he knows the way of safety. Now, in harmony with this, again, is another statement that you may be well aware of. Uh, Ellen White, uh, one of her very popular statements on this, Early Writings, page 78. She says, I recommend to you, dear reader, the what? The word of God as the rule of your faith and practice. Just like that instruction was the rule of the faith and practice. Now, there were prophets that obviously were canonized. And today we say the scripture is that rule of faith and practice. This is what she's saying here. I recommend to you, dear reader. This is Ellen White. She's not saying, I recommend to you, dear reader, my writings as the rule of faith and practice. By that word, we are to be judged. Don't miss what it goes on to say here. God has, what are the next three words? In that word, promised to give visions in the last days. Is that true? Absolutely true. We looked at it yesterday. It's in the Word. We didn't make it up. God has in the Word that we claim to follow said, I'm going to give you visions in the last days. She continues. Let's have this on the screen. Not for a... I wreak havoc with the AV guys, and I'm sorry, guys. Not for a new rule of faith, but for the comfort of His people and to what? Correct those who err from my statements. Bible truth. This, this is just fitting what we see in Scripture, the prophet pointing back to Scripture. And here she explains the role of the Scripture and the role of her visions. The Scripture is the foundation, it's the rule of faith. The, the visions are given to point people back who claim to be following the Bible, but are not following the Bible. Are you with me so far? Okay, now what I'd like to do is I'd like to go to the book of Ephesians. We looked at this the other day. We're talking about spiritual gifts. And I want, to see, I want you to see a primary function of the gift of prophecy. And in, in fact, this is not limited to the gift of prophecy. Ephesians chapter 4. And we're going to start in verse 11. We looked at this the other day. But I want to zero in on something. Ephesians 4, 11. Ephesians 4, verse 11, the Bible says, And he himself, speaking of Christ, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. And then he explains why. He says, For the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. What is the body of Christ? That's his church. The edifying, the building up. Notice verse 13, Till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Let me pause there. So these gifts are given, not just the gift of prophecy. All of these gifts that are listed are bring, are, one of the functions is to bring us to what's called the unity of the faith. Not just unity, not this general unity. We love to throw the word unity around, but you can be united in a lot of different things. Some good, some bad. This says the unity of the faith. This is, this is being united in what we believe. Right? Notice that all of these gifts function for that purpose. But there's a distinction between the prophet and the pastor, for example. Pastor is one of those gifts. I'm a pastor. Wouldn't claim to be a prophet. I get my authority from the prophets. Right? That's where my authority is. It's not in my thoughts or opinions. But where does the prophet get the authority from? In a special sense, the prophet gets you. Now I get my authority from God, but I get it through the prophets. That's how it works. But all of these gifts function... For one purpose, to bring us to the unity of the faith. Notice verse, um, 
Oh, I got to find my place again. Verse 14, now notice, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about by what? Every wind of doctrine. Now, doctrine is just a word that means teaching. And what the Bible says is these gifts are to help to establish us and unite us in what we believe so that we're not fickle and tossed around with, with not knowing what we believe. And, oh, here's somebody teaches this and somebody teaches this and we just don't know which way to go. According to the Bible, the spiritual gifts are to operate as an authority that can tell us, thus saith the Lord, so we know where to stand as, what's, as to what's truth. You understand what I'm saying there? You understand what the scratch? I don't care if you understand what I'm saying. Do you understand the passage there? This is a primary function of the gift of prophecy. Now, I, I, these gifts, let's start with, with, let me ask you this question. I want you to imagine yourself in a setting where you've got, that you, this won't take you long to imagine it. You've probably been in these settings before. Where you're in a room of people and you've got to decide something and, and everybody has a different idea. That's hard to imagine, isn't it? You've probably been, right, Delwyn? <laughs> I mean, anybody who sits on a board or something, you sit and everybody has their ideas. Now, I want you to just imagine, you're, you're talking about, let me give you a real practical thing. You, you work for a corporation, and that corporation is buying a new fleet of cars, and you've got to decide which manufacturer you're going with. One guy's all for Hondas, one guy's all for Fords, one guy's at Buy American, Buy Foreign, one guy's Isuzu, one guy wants to see if they the still make Yugos, and you've got this whole thing that... Most of you probably don't even know what I'm talking about there. But anyway, you've got this whole group of people, and they have their varied ideas. Now, I want you to think about this. Is there a way you can bring everybody to a consensus of belief on which manufacturer to use? And I'm not talking about tolerance here. Like, okay, I guess I'll put up with it because I have to because I was outvoted. Is there a way that you could get everybody in that room on the same page to where they are wholeheartedly in support of one choice. There is. There really is. And it's not all that complicated. If everybody in that room were to accept a certain individual, let's say, as an authority, and that individual came in and said, I hear your discussion, but I'm going to tell you that you need to go with the Isuzu or whatever. I don't know if i got an Isuzu fan here, but if, if everybody in that room recognized that person as an authority, even if they didn't agree, I mean, if, if it, from, a, from a personal standpoint, if they recognized that, recognized that person as an authority on the subject, they'd say, well, you know, I never saw it that way, but they know better. Isn't that right? And they would yield their opinion to the authority, and what would result? Unity. What is that authority for the Christian? It's Scripture. That's the whole purpose. It's not the whole, but it's a, it's a key purpose of Scripture. That though I may believe any number of things, when I see what Scripture says, even if I don't feel it, I need to be willing to submit to that authority. And if I do that and you do that and we all do that, guess what it happens? What happens? What results? Unity of the faith. The question comes in, I mean, what I just stated is a pretty common belief among Christians, not just Adventist Christians. But what happens when we're all studying the Scripture and we still aren't united? Because we read it differently. Does God have a way to deal with that? Go to the book of Acts with me, chapter 15. 
I've got to do this quickly. We've got a lot of things we're going to look at. I didn't need to tell you that, right? You knew that was going to be the case. Acts chapter 15. Now, this is the story of the Jerusalem council. And what has happened, well, let's just read the first few verses and then I'll explain. Acts chapter 15, verse 1. The Bible says, And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute, I always love the way that Luke words things. It wasn't like they had this great argument. They had no small dissension and dispute. Concerning, or with them, it says, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy to all the brethren. And when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all the things that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up saying it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. So there's this contention over circumcision. Now I'm going to tell you without taking the time to do it that if we had time, I would take, go to scriptures and I'd show you the scriptures that could be presented on both sides. You go to Exodus where God said if you're going to keep the Passover, you've got to be circumcised. If you want to be part of the Israelites. But you could go to Isaiah 56 where God says, look, as long, if they want to be part of my people, they just need to keep the Sabbath and hold fast my covenant. Okay. And so I don't know what the case was except for both sides were Scripture believers, but they had different interpretations of Scripture. Okay. So they come together to talk about this thing. Now, if you continue on with me there, verse 6, the Bible says, now the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. And when there had been much dispute, you ever been one of those meetings? When there had been much dispute, everybody gives their, shares their idea, we hear everybody out. Peter rose up and said to them, men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Now pause for a minute and ask yourself, now Peter's speaking of something that is a well-known event in Christian history, right? Because he says, you guys all know this. You all know that a while back, God chose that by my mouth, the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel. Where in Scripture do we know that that took place? It's in there. Where was it in Scripture that we know God came to Peter and told him he needed to go to the Gentiles? Acts chapter 10, right? And what happened in Acts chapter 10? How did God tell Peter? He received a vision. Yes or no? He received a vision, and now as they're discussing Scripture, everybody gives their interpretation of Scripture. Peter, with prophetic authority, stands up in the meeting, and he says, listen, God spoke to me. You all know this, this experience. But God revealed to me in vision that this was the case. Notice what happens. Go to verse 12. It says, Then all the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. So they're just affirming what Peter says. Hey, we've had this, we've experienced what he's talking about. And then verse 13 says, After they had become silent, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at the first, Simon Peter, has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this, notice, with this, the what? 
The words of the prophet agree. So Peter gets up and cites his vision, but James wants to clarify that what Peter says is not, a new, is not new light. It's in harmony with Scripture. It clarifies their interpretation of Scripture. Are you following that? Now, I'm not going to read the rest of it for sake of time, but the church, when Peter gives his testimony, James gets up and he rules that, listen, this is settled. Peter has weighed in. We're going to let that prophetic vision have its weight and bring us to unity. And what happened is those who received it and believed it were brought and united and the mission of the church went forward. That is how the gift was functioning in the early church. There are people today who tell me that the prophetic gift should not function to solve doctrinal issues. It's not, not what we find in Scripture. And brothers and sisters, let me be clear with you. I will make no apology for any area of my faith that's in harmony with Scripture. I don't care. You can criticize it all day long. Well, you shouldn't let Ellen White do that. I'm sorry. If it's in harmony with Scripture, I'm okay with it. And this is the model that we see in Scripture. Now, do we find a similar function of the gift of prophecy in the early Adventist church? We do. We do. Sharing just a few statements here, I'm going to go to the screen. Ellen White shares about those early days when we were studying out. This is very important for you to understand how we came to understand the doctrines that we espouse. She says, again and again, these brethren came together to study what? My visions. That's not what it says. To study the Bible in order that they might know its meaning and be prepared to teach it with power. When they came to the point in their study where they said, we can do nothing more, the Spirit of the Lord would come upon me, I would be taken off in vision, and I would go on a tangent of my opinion about the... No, I'm being a little facetious here. Notice, in a clear explanation of what? The passages we had been studying would be given me with the instruction as to how we were to labor and teach effectively. Now, I really want you to get this. First of all, what she's saying is we studied, 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 and when we ran into something in Scripture that was confusing, and we couldn't figure it out, the Spirit of God would come upon me, she said, I would give, be given understanding, and, and I would give my explanation of the very passage we were studying. How many of you have done deep Bible study before? You're studying out a passage. You're trying to understand. Let me ask you a question. If somebody came in and just threw out some random, well, I think it, maybe it means this. If it didn't harmonize with what you'd been studying for hours or days or weeks, would you be like, oh, okay. You'd know right away that doesn't make any sense. That doesn't even fit. I just want you to understand that sometimes we get this idea that, well, Ellen White said something, our pioneer said, oh, guess, oh, okie doke. That's not how it worked. They were studying the passages, and when she spoke, that's, ex that's it. It, was, it. it clicked. In another place, and I don't have the statement here, she says that God would show her in relation to Scripture with Scripture. And so, he got, the Lord would reveal in the vision another passage that they could look at that said the same contextual thing. So, I want you to understand that Scripture was always the basis. It was always the foundation. Ellen White didn't become the basis for anything. But she weighed in, just like Peter did. Peter did not become the basis of doctrine in the Christian church, but he did weigh in on it. So she says, uh, thus light, oh, let's have that back on the screen. So that last sentence, thus light was given that helped us to understand what? Not my writings, the scriptures. A similar statement, she shares of a meeting they had at one of the early Sabbath conferences. At our first Sabbath conference in New York, uh, Testimonies, volume 1, page 86, 
was held at Volney in a brother's barn. About 35 were present, all that could be collected in that part of the state. But of this number, hardly two were agreed. Some were holding serious errors, and each strenuously urged his own views, declaring that they were according to the Scriptures. Seen that before? The light of heaven rested upon me, and I was soon lost to earthly things. My accompanying angel presented before me some of the errors of those present, and also the truth in contrast with their errors. These discordant views which they claimed to be according to the Bible were only according to their opinion of the Bible, and they must what? What are they yielding their errors to? What are they going to yield to? The authority. Remember the car example? And where's the authority here? It's the Bible ultimately, but it's she's weighing in and she's saying, this is, thus saith the Lord, this is what this means. Now they could have believed whatever that, there's 35 different people. They all believe something else. They say, I'm not going to believe that. They have the option, but she said they must yield their errors and unite upon the third angel's message. Our meeting closed what? How's the only, what's the only way it could close triumphantly? They yielded their errors and said we're going to believe, like, like the church in Acts 15. And it brought unity, truth, gained the victory. That's how it happened in the early Adventist church. J.N. Andrews, got to give you a little background here before I show you this slide here. J.N. Andrews, right? We have a university named after him. J.N. Andrews was our premier scholar, and it's important for me to bring this up because sometimes it's this battle of, well, Ellen White, we've got scholars that can figure this stuff out. J.N. Andrews could read the Bible in seven different languages. When in a discussion, this wasn't a boastful way that he said it, but a discussion, one particular discussion, he was cited as saying that if we lost every copy of the New Testament, he could produce it from memory. This is a man who knew Scripture, he knew the languages, he knew all that. So, if anybody had the right to say, well, some people need Ellen White to help out, but I understand it pretty well, and I have the Bible, and notice what Andrews said. This is in a review article, February 15, 1870. The spiritual gifts constitute the means whereby God preserves his people from confusion by pointing out errors, by correcting what? False interpretations of the scriptures and causing light to shine out upon that which is in danger of being wrongly understood and therefore of being the cause of evil and division to the people of God. In short, their work is to unite the people of God in the same mind and in the same judgment upon the meaning of the Scriptures. You lost a good opportunity there. Mere human judgment with no direct instruction from heaven can never search out hidden iniquity, nor adjust dark and complicated church difficulties, nor prevent differing and conflicting interpretations of the Scriptures. It would be sad indeed if God could not still converse with His people. Now, brothers and sisters, that was, how we, that was the foundation we were based on. Let me ask you a question. If the Seventh-day Adventist Church starts getting to a position where, like, well, we shouldn't let Ellen White weigh in on doctrinal things, what's going to happen to our doctrines? What do you think? Do you think we're going to start having more of a plethora of a, a, a cafeteria style? We got all these different variations. I don't need to ask the question, do I? We see that because what, what's happening is we're not, we're, let, we're not letting the gift function the way that Scripture did and the way that our early church did. We find and hear the claim, I hear the claim often, that Ellen White should not have any role in settling doctrinal issues. I shared with you Dr. Knight's new book the other day, 
Again, I want to be clear, I'm not reading into motive, I don't want to disparage, but I disagree with what he's stating here from a standpoint, and I told you the other day, from a standpoint of just fact, and I'm going to share it's demonstrable, I'm going to demonstrate it from her writings. My, my, you know, you can believe whatever you want. People, people, you've got an opportunity. You don't have to believe Adventist doctrine. You, don't have, you can believe whatever you want. But I want to be clear that there are certain people, when somebody says, well, Ellen White said this, and Ellen White believed this and she didn't, I just think we need to be clear on that. Once you're clear on that, you make your decisions. He says here, from her perspective, her writings had their purposes, but one of them was not to take a superordinate position to the Bible by providing an infallible commentary. Well, that's a tricky phrase. No, Ellen White didn't want her writings to have superordinate, in other words, above the Bible. But is allowing her writings to influence the understanding of the Bible, putting it above the Bible. It, didn't, it wasn't with Peter, right? And we have already seen it in our early movement. Now, there were cases. There were cases that we, in fact, if you get into this discussion with people, and they say, well, look, Ellen White was plain. She didn't want her writings used to solve doctrinal matters. There are going to be two things you're going to hear. And generally, probably only two. The same two things. It's just like when you talk to somebody about the Sabbath. You're going to hear Colossians 2 and Romans 14. Because there's not a lot else that, that is, maybe is confusing. You're going to hear about the daily in Daniel. And you're going to hear about the long Galatians. And even as I got into the chapter, I knew where we were going. I saw this in the chapter and I said, I know where we're going. We're going long Galatians. And there were places and times, including those I'm going to share with you in a moment. Where Ellen White said, I don't want my, my writings used to solve it. Go study the Bible on this thing. Notice, first of all, a statement regarding the issue of the daily. Now, Dr. Knight quotes this in his book. He says, I entreat of elders Haskell, Loughborough, Smith, and others of our leading brethren that they make no reference to my writings to sustain their views of the daily. I cannot consent that any of my writings shall be taken as settling this matter. Now, people want to take that and say, there it is. She doesn't want her writings ever used to help us shape doctrinal understanding. I want you to see why she says what she says in the very next slide. I now ask that my ministering brethren shall not make use of my writings in their arguments regarding this question, for I have had no instruction on the point under discussion. And I see no need for the controversy. Two things she says there. First of all, I've had no instruction. Why are you guys wasting your time on this? <laughs> okay? Very similarly with the law in Galatians, where Ellen White said, you guys, I don't, I'm not going to weigh in on this. Look what she says in the 1888 materials, page 93. I have not with me the light God has given or had given me on this subject, and which had been written, and I dared not make any rash statement in relation to it till I could see what I had written upon it. We saw a little bit of this yesterday where Ellen White said, somebody accused her of writing her own opinion. She said, I've got enough to write of what the Lord has shown me to fall back on my own opinions. In another place that we looked at yesterday, she said, I dared not speak beyond what the Spirit of God permitted. Ellen White was careful not to just go out and throw out her opinions on stuff. She said, I don't have light on this, so I can't weigh in, and I don't want you guys to try to use my writings to solve something. I don't have light on that. And Ellen White was very strong. She wanted Seventh-day Adventists to know the Bible for themselves. And in these contexts, that's exactly what she's appealing to. She, she goes on in this particular statement to say this. There are hundreds, <clears throat> speaking of Seventh-day Adventists, that know not why they believe the doctrines they do. 
Let all search the what? Scriptures diligently for themselves and not be satisfied to have the leaders do it for them. Else we shall be as, the, as a people in a position similar to that of the Jews in Christ's time, having plenty of machinery, forms, and customs, but bearing little fruit to God's glory. Have mercy. So Ellen White was very much wanting Seventh-day Adventists to get their foundation of faith from Scripture and to be regular students of the Bible. Amen? But that does not follow, it does not follow that that meant she doesn't want her writings to affect how we study and interpret Scripture. That would be a violation of the very gift of prophecy and the reasons the Bible gives for it. Some cases in point. In a letter to A.T. Jones, A.T. Jones had been, was this A.T. Jones? No, I think, I think this was another man. I Pardon me. Um, let me find my place in my note. Jones had also uh, supported a woman who claimed the gift of prophecy named Anna Rice Phillips. This particular uh, letter was written to a brother Garmeyer, J.M. Garmeyer, in August 6, 1890. And notice what she says to him. You say, she's talking about this Anna Rice Phillips, you don't need to know the history necessarily, but she says, you say that Anna's visions place the forming of the image of the beast after probation closes. This is not so. Now notice the next part. You claim to believe the testimonies. Let them set you right on this point. There are people today, the book I cited and many others, it'll say Ellen White did not want her writings to settle any doctrinal issues. Uh, pardon me. This is pretty clear to me. Let them set you right on this point. She continues, The Lord has shown me clearly that the image of the beast will be formed before probation closes, for it is the great test for the people of God by which their eternal destiny will be decided. Similarly, and I mean, I'm just giving you a few references. Similarly, she wrote to A.T. Jones. This is uh, taken from Manuscript Releases, Volume 14. She says, Elder Wagner, speaking of E.J. Wagner, Elder Wagner has brought before some of the people ideas in regard to organization that ought never to have had expression. I supposed that the question of organization was settled forever with those who believed the testimonies given through Sister White. Now, if they believe the testimonies, why do they work what? Contrary to them. Why should not my brethren be prudent enough, follow this, to place these matters before me, or at least inquire if I had any light upon these subjects? Does that sound like she didn't want to be consulted in study of the Bible, or that she did? She's saying, before you guys come to these conclusions, at least you should check my writings. Yes or no? You, don't have, you can have a different issue, but that, I just want you to be clear what she understood about the gift. And I believe that's in harmony with what we've been, been reading in Scripture here. She continues, Why is it that these things start up at this time when we have canvassed the matter in our previous history and who has spoken? Where did he speak? Through his prophet. God has spoken upon these subjects. Should not that be enough? Now, in a statement we already looked at, she said that the writings were not for a new rule of faith, but for the comfort of his people, and to what? Correct those who err from 
If the writings are not to be taken into consideration with your doctrinal understandings, how are they ever going to correct you when you err from Bible truth? It's obvious that, yes, Ellen White wanted Adventists to study the Bible, to hold their foundations of faith in the Bible, but that doesn't mean you don't allow Let me put it this way, folks. I talk to people, and they're like, you Adventists, non-Adventist critics, they'll be like, you Adventists let Ellen White influence you, but I just read the Bible. Don't kid yourself. Everybody, first of all, none of us were there. None of us personally know the Apostle Paul. Isn't that right? So everything we read by the Apostle Paul is a matter of interpretation. Everything is a matter of interpretation. Everything that we have is influenced through some lens. The issue isn't like Adventists are influenced by Ellen White and we're just, I just read the Bible. No, you're influenced by some scholar. And if I'm going to be influenced by anybody, I'd rather be a prophet of God than some human being who has no inspiration. It's the bottom line. And this is, it's not taking the place of Scripture. It's the function of the role of the gift. And to deny it is to deny the gift of the Spirit. Now, I want to touch on, on something else in this context. It's, it's anyway... This idea that's conveyed that Ellen White should never be used in a public forum. Like right now, I shouldn't be, we shouldn't be quoting Ellen White in sermons. I mentioned that the other day. I shared with you, somebody had, had seen this and, and posted a quote to me. Here's the quote. From Prophets and Kings, page 626. The words of the Bible and the Bible alone should be heard from the pulpit. This was shared as trying to make the point that Ellen White did not want her writings used in the pulpit. Dr. Knight makes the same point, which I'm going to touch on here in just a moment. First of all, let's just take the statement at face value. Okay, if we're going to... Sometimes the proofs people use to prove something prove more than they want it to prove. If you want to take that statement, the Bible and the Bible alone should be presented from the pulpit, I shouldn't be saying anything up here but reading the book. Right? Is that really her point? It's not her point if you read the greater context. But these things are brought up and said Ellen White is not supposed to be used in um, uh, speaking from the pulpit. Dr. Knight says in his book, Ellen White was consistent that her works were not to be made prominent in sermons and other public formats. And he draws that from a statement. Now he goes on and he quotes this statement. And he quotes it just like I have it on the screen. In public labor, do not make prominent and quote that which Sister White has written as authority to sustain your positions. Bring your evidences clear and plain from the Word of God. Let none be educated to look to Sister White, but to the mighty God who gives instruction to Sister White. Now, first of all, it doesn't really clarify there, but she's speaking to an evangelist, and she's talking to this guy about preaching to public in a, in a public setting. I do not quote Ellen White in my public evangelistic meeting, saints. And, and I want you to notice, what's, now, there's an ellipsis there that uh, a piece that he left out, so I put it in, and this is what it says. And I don't, I don't, I think he probably left it out like I do oftentimes for brevity. I don't want to accuse him of trying to trick anybody, but it's it's helpful if you put that on the screen, please. In what kind of labor? Public labor. Do not make prominent. First of all, it just says make prominent, and quote that which Sister White has written as what authority to sustain, and then she says. To do this will not increase faith in the testimonies. Well, you're not and trying to increase faith in, the, faith in the testimonies per se with believers. She's talking about preaching to unbelievers here. I need that on the screen again. Bring your evidences clear and plain from the Word of God. This is simply saying when we're in public labors, the people haven't accepted this, the gift of prophecy. And so they don't see it as an authority. 
And so don't use it as an authority in that setting. However, Knight goes on in his book to say this, more work needs to be done on the use of Ellen White as an authority in sermons and other presentations during her lifetime, but my impression is that use of her works in even theological argumentation was not practiced much until the early 1880s. And then he says, what we do know is that by the 1888 General Conference session, the transition had begun even though Ellen White herself objected to it. By the early 1890s, A.T. Jones, among other leaders, was using some of her statements as texts for his messages to Adventist groups, although he claimed that her writings should not be used that way in presentations to non-Adventists. Now, what's really ironic to me is that of all the people he would use, it's A.T. Jones. And I'm going to tell you why. I'm going to tell you history you might not be aware of. You see, A.T. Jones when he began to fall away from the Seventh-day Adventist faith, you know what the point, uh, one of his main points of, problem, of contention was? The inspiration of Ellen White. He began doubting the testimonies. And so in later years, as he was beginning to doubt the testimonies, Ellen White wrote a letter to him, and this is what she says. You can find that letter in Manuscript Releases, Volume 9, page 278. It has been presented to me that I must speak to you, A.T. Jones, for you need help in order to break the spell that has been upon you. If you would humble your heart before the Lord and accept the light that He has given you, coming through her testimonies, you would have help from God. Now notice how she goes on to try to help him. I have been instructed. Who instructed her? When she says that, this is the Lord has told me to use those what? What are discourses? Sermons. Those discourses of yours printed in the General Conference bulletins of 1893 and 1897. Pause here. Has anybody here ever read or heard those sermons in 1893? I have read all of those sermons, and on a regular basis, A.T. Jones quotes Ellen White in his sermons. So you need to know that. Now she's telling him, and in fact, this is the very reason she's telling him this. I've been instructed to have you go back and read those sermons of yours. Notice what she goes on to say which contains strong arguments regarding the validity of the testimonies. How do they contain strong arguments? Because he was quoting them in his sermons. So she's instructed to have him go back, remember his faith is weakening, and read these, which contain strong arguments regarding the validity of the testimonies, which substantiate the gift of prophecy among us. I don't want you to miss that. Folks, one of the identifying characteristics of the remnant church is the gift of prophecy. Now, what happens to an honest seeker who's going about trying to find this remnant and they don't know who it is? So they're looking for a church that keeps the commandments of God and believes in the gift of prophecy. And lo and behold, they run into Adventist churches today and they're going to find the commandments. Guess what they're not going to hear? They're not going to hear the spirit of prophecy because it's not supposed to be used. She says that these messages substantiate the gift because when people hear the gift presented, they know that we're that people that have that identifying characteristic. Are you following that? And which substantiate the gift of prophecy among us. I, have, I was shown that many would be helped by these articles, these sermons printed in the... And especially those what? Newly come to the faith who have not been made acquainted with our history as a people. It will be a blessing to you to read again these arguments, notice, which were of the Holy Spirit's framing. So the Holy, let me ask, did the Holy Spirit frame some sermons and in the framing of those sermons for A.T. Jones forgot to tell him not to quote the gift of prophecy? 
Brothers and sisters, it's just, it's just a false. It's fake news, yeah. Now, let's go back earlier in our movement. Way back, this has been in the movement. We've wrestled with this for a long time. There have always been people who are agitated with Ellen White being referenced in the church. So Ellen White wrote... Let me back up here. I want to give you the intro to this, and I'm looking for it. In the earliest days of our denominational experience, there were some newly come to the faith who, instead of taking their position on the side of the testimonies, would get agitated whenever she was spoken of in the church. Ellen White, seeking to give guidance and encouragement to church members, wrote these words in Testimonies 1. You find it, page 328 and 29. She says, if they carry their opposition so far as to oppose that in which they have no experience, right, they're newly come, they don't have experience in the spiritual gift, the gift of prophecy, her gift, and feel what? Annoyed when those who believe that the visions are of God speak of them where? What does that mean? In the church. I don't think this is limited to pastors. I think it's any believer in the church. We come together and we speak of them. Why? Because, the, because it's the truth and we love them. <laughs> and I can't, I can't have those conversations during the week like I can among a fellow believer. And she says when there are those who feel agitated of... When the, when, um, read that again. And feel annoyed when those who believe that the visions are of God speak of them in meeting and comfort themselves with the instruction given through vision, the church may know that they are what? The people who are fighting against it and getting agitated are not right. We may know they're not right when they're annoyed that people bring up spirit of prophecy in church. That's what she says. Oh, we're not done. God's people should not what? Cringe and yield and give up their... What liberty are we talking about? What freedom are we talking about? The freedom to come into church and speak of the visions. God's people should not cringe and yield and give up their liberty to such disaffected ones. God has placed the gifts in the church that the church may be benefited by them. And when professed believers in the truth oppose these gifts and fight against the visions, souls are in danger through their influence, and it is time then to labor with them that the weak may not be led astray by their influence. Have mercy indeed. Well, I want to finish this today by sharing with you uh, an account. Maybe you're familiar with it. There's an old book called The Spirit of Prophecy Treasure Chest. There's an article in there by Arthur White, the grandson of Ellen White, called A Never-to-Be-Forgotten Lesson, which we have forgotten. So I'm going to remind us. A Never-to-Be-Forgotten Lesson. Criticisms against Ellen White and her ministry have been circulating since the beginning of our movement. Even before we had a denominational name, those who opposed our faith consistently charged Adventists with getting all their beliefs from Ellen White's visions and not from the Bible. That happened way back in the beginning of our movement. And so, the founders of our church, Ellen White was still alive, understand, said, you know what, we, we, well, that's not true. We don't get our beliefs from her visions, we get them from the Bible. And in order to prove that, we are going to stop printing her visions in our paper. 
And so the church took a vote and decided we did not have a general conference or anything like that yet, but the leadership got together and said, this is what we're going to do. We're not going to put her writings in the... They, they continued to give support to the doctrine of spiritual gifts, but wouldn't publish anything by Ellen White. She wasn't allowed to speak in our papers. For four years this went on, and the only articles allowed by Ellen White were articles where she wasn't commenting on something that, you know, she saw or whatever from the Lord. Now, I'm giving you the quick version of this story. But after time, the brethren began to notice that something wasn't right. Uh, reading from White's article, he says that uh, they began to be concerned. Before I tell you that, uh, Ellen White herself makes this statement. There was something that began to change in her own the frequency of the visions she was receiving. She said in Review and Herald, January 10, 1856, the visions have been of late less and less frequent. And my testimony for God's children had been gone. I have thought that my work in God's cause was done and that I had no further duty to do. Look at this, 1856. I'm done. I said what I needed to say. I'm going to go on with my life. I had no other duty to do but to save my own soul and carefully attend to my little family, have a good influence over my children, pray with them and for them that they may be saved. In 1856, she felt her work may be done. Meanwhile, the brethren, recognizing that this attitude was not blessing the church that they had taken, but it was kind of putting a damper on everything, they came together and assembled in conference at Battle Creek. And after discussing, they passed a formal action that Joseph Bates, J.H. Wagner, and Emmy Cornell be appointed to address the saints in behalf of the conference on the gifts of the church. This is what they said in part that White shares in his article entitled, What? A Never-to-Be-Forgotten Lesson. The brethren said, in view of the present low state of the precious cause of our blessed Master, we feel to humble ourselves before God and confess our unfaithfulness and departure from the way of the Lord, whereby the spirit of holiness has been grieved, our own souls burdened, and an occasion given to the enemy of all righteousness to rejoice over the decline of faith and spirituality amongst the scattered flock. Why is this happening? Because the gift of prophecy has been given a backseat. Continue, they continue in this address to the conference. We would confess the inconsistency which we believe has been what? Displeasing to God of professedly regarding them, the spiritual gifts, as messages from God and really putting them on a level with the inventions of men. We fear that this has resulted from an unwillingness to bear the reproach of Christ, which is indeed greater riches than the treasures of earth, and a desire to conciliate the feelings of our opponents. You get what they're saying there? We fear that the real reason we did this was not to show that we get our beliefs from the Bible. It's because we didn't want to be called a cult, and we didn't want our opponents to think poorly of us. We loved the world more than we loved Christ. We loved approbation. Isn't that what happened with the blind man's parents, right? They didn't want to be cast out of the temple. Who healed your son? We don't know. 
because they feared they'd be thrown out of the synagogue. They said, we confess that we, it, we have not been seeking God's will, but our own will. But the Word and our own experience have taught us that God is not honored, nor His cause advanced by such a course. While we regard them, the gifts, as coming from God and entirely harmonizing with His written Word, we must acknowledge ourselves under obligation to abide by their teachings and be corrected by their admonitions. To say that they are of God, and yet we will not be tested by them, is to say that God's will is not a test or rule for Christians, which is inconsistent and absurd. That's a piece of their statement in the never-to-be-forgotten lesson. At the close of the conference, Ellen White received a vision. This is what she says in part. November 20, 1855, while in prayer, the Spirit of the Lord came suddenly and powerfully upon me, and I was taken off in vision. I saw that the Spirit of the Lord has been dying away from the church. Why? Because the church was not appreciating the gift. Incredible. And then a few weeks later, a message came to her, uh, to the people through Ellen White's pen once more. She said, at our late conference at Battle Creek in November, God wrought for us. The minds of the servants of God were exercised as to the gifts of the church. And if God's frown had been brought upon his people because the gifts had been slighted and neglected. Let me just pause. Let me ask you, how had the gifts been slighted and neglected? By saying, we're just going to show that everything comes from the Bible. I mean, that doesn't sound inherently evil, does it? And in part, I don't want to say it's evil. Our beliefs come from the Bible. But in order to prove that, they shut her writings out. Wouldn't let them have a place. Why? Because our critics said that that's ruling out the principle of sola scriptura. Folks, it's not. And our critics are going to say what they're going to say. But I can't change my faith away from what the Bible tells me to do and practice what the Bible tells me to practice because the critics don't like it. Now, look, other people may not understand the role of the gift of prophecy. They may not be convinced that it's only because of our belief in Scripture, but you should be convinced. There's not a one of us here who should not be clear that the only reason we hold the gift of prophecy as we do, is because we believe in Scripture. And I would just as soon give up anything if I, it was clear to me it wasn't in Scripture. But I'm sorry, this I cannot do with the gift of prophecy, and neither could our pioneers. Again, <clears throat> just finishing up here at our late conference in Battle Creek in November, Ellen White is writing here, God wrought for us, the minds of the servants of God were exercised as to the gifts of the church, and if God's frown had been brought upon His people because the gifts had been slighted and neglected, there was a pleasing prospect that his smiles would again be upon us and he would graciously and mercifully revive the gifts again and they would live in the church to encourage the desponding and fainting soul and to correct and reprove the erring. Amen. Praise God for his mercy. Brothers and sisters, help us to never forget the never-to-be-forgotten lesson. And thank God for his condescension in still speaking and communicating to his remnant people. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Father, we do thank you again for the testimony you have given us in this church. 
And Lord, as we continue to study this week to gain a better understanding and more practical and personal understanding, I just pray that your spirit, the spirit that inspired the prophets, would give us clarity. For we ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.